The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations from listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely online at kopn.org. Thank you. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And today I am delighted to welcome my guest, Dr. Shoshana Inwood. She is a rural sociologist and an associate professor in the School of Environment and Natural Resources at The Ohio State University. She holds degrees in rural sociology, environmental science, and biology, and her career has focused on the intersection of agriculture, environment, and society in the context of community and economic development. She is most recently an author of an article in The Conversation titled, Family Farms Are Struggling with Two Hidden Challenges, Health Insurance and Child Care, and that article summarizes 10 years of research. And that will be the main focus of our discussion today. Welcome, Dr. Inwood. Thank you so much for having me today. Well, this is such an important topic. So I just wanted to know how you became interested in the food system based on your background, starting with biology, environmental science, and then rural sociology. Oh, Melinda, that's such a great question. So I actually grew up in Brooklyn, New York, and came from a family that just loved to eat. Every holiday was about what's the freshest food that we could have and going to the farmer's market. In college, I majored in biology and was really interested in plants and the soil. I quickly realized that I need to do a lot of advanced work in chemistry. That was really not my favorite subject. And at the same time, Michael Pollan's work on GMOs was coming out and really got me thinking about where did I want to go with my career. I was supposed to go into the Peace Corps and go to West Africa and teach people about farming, but coming from the city, I didn't really think that that was really my role (laughs) or I had much to offer, and instead wound up interning on an organic vegetable farm in central Ohio, on Malabar Farm State Park, which some of your listeners may know from Louis Bromfield. He did a lot of work pioneering sustainable agriculture techniques like rotational grazing and strip cropping, and... There really started to learn the lessons of the land. And a friend and I started our own organic farm the next year, actually just a couple miles up the road from Malabar. And we started a CSA an hour and a half away in Columbus, Ohio. We're also selling at farmer's markets. And we were both also working two part-time jobs off the farm to make ends meet. We were also renting land from a family who really had experienced a lot of the social disorganization that was happening in rural America, where they had really good factory jobs, but it was also a time when the factories may or may not have been closing like this year, next year, and it caused a lot of abuse and social disorganization within the family. And so it really got a firsthand lesson of what it's like to try to farm and make a living in rural America. And I fell into grad school, studied environmental science, and then moved into rural sociology, realizing that we can come up with a lot of technical solutions, but at the end of the day, people are the problem. And people are the most complex and most interesting, and and they're really the place where all the magic also happens. And so that's really why I wanted to focus in on rural sociology and try to work on issues that have such a profound impact on all Americans. Mm. 
And you recently, or maybe you still do, serve on the COVID-19 task force at Ohio State. Is that correct? I did. Over the summer, I co-chaired the Ohio State's College of Food and Agriculture COVID-19 and the Food Supply Task Force. And that was really a very interesting eye-opener into how we as a country and as a state and also the university think about food and agriculture and, and the different connections between our rural and urban communities. What do you think the pandemic has taught us about our food system? That's such a great question. I think, and I'm sure for a lot of your listeners are probably seeing this in their own communities as well, there was a real surge in interest in local foods and maybe thinking a little bit more deeply about the vulnerabilities in our food system. You know, we can appreciate how efficient the dominant food system is, and it, and it is really efficient and makes a lot of food available at a very low cost, right? It does that really, really well. But we also saw the vulnerabilities to efficiencies and that there's downsides to efficiencies. And so as we're trying to imagine a future post-COVID, but also I think a little bit more aware of any of the potential disasters that could be down the pike. Just in the last week, we had news of cyber attacks happening at JBS. We know climate change is going to create catastrophic weather events. Thinking about how do we create more resilience and having a more diversified agricultural system and more diversified farms, both in terms of what they're producing, but also in terms of the size of farms and who's running those farms. So both biophysical diversity, but also social diversity in our farming system will actually make us much stronger. Right. It's interesting when we talk about resilience, for example, the first word that comes to my mind is diversity. So that if you have one small piece that fails, you've got redundancy in the system. And that's how we remain resilient in face of whatever crisis it is of the day. So it could be another pandemic of some sort. And then, of course, we've been facing climate change prior to COVID. So we have a lot to be concerned about. And in terms of resilience, I think that your research is right on target in questioning, you know, what is it going to take? to keep our smaller, more diverse family farmers alive. And your recent paper looking at health insurance and child care are so important. These are such important topics. And yet, we don't normally have those topics discussed, say, in agricultural economic settings, do we? No, we, we rarely do. I think that's what's been so interesting about uh, doing this research is that when you talk to farmers or just hanging out, you know, in conferences or riding around with farmers in their trucks, people will talk about these things very, like they'll, they'll drip out in conversation, but we are predominantly focused within the field of agriculture and supporting farmers on issues related to supporting farmers for access to markets, capital, credit, land access, skill development, all of which is super important issues that, that absolutely have to be addressed. But we're much less comfortable talking about these social household level issues. And there's a tendency to see them as separate from the enterprise. But in reality, when we're talking about a family farm, right, the family is absolutely intertwined with that farm enterprise. And so it's really important that we understand how those two spheres are interacting and influencing each other and affecting the trajectory of the farm enterprise itself. Why haven't we been talking about this? That's a really great question. I think it comes from a lot of different reasons. I think part of it is just 
you know, these are very personal issues, right? And, and especially for our agriculture and natural resource educators, we're not trained. Folks aren't trained to talk about social issues and personal issues. So you do what you, what you know is comfortable. I think also for a long time, a lot of our farm programming has really kind of focused on this individualistic approach to what makes a good farmer, right? And that if you fail, it's because you weren't a good business manager or because you didn't know when to plant and when to harvest or how to manage your labor effectively. And very rarely do we think about, well, farmers are actually embedded in larger systems, larger government systems, larger economic systems, larger social systems. And so part of this research actually started back in 2010, actually even before that, when there was talk about the passage of the Affordable Care Act. And one of the big questions that I had was, when there's major policy shifts, like health insurance policy changing, how is that going to play out in the farm sector, right? What are the opportunities? What are the challenges? And let's look at the farm sector also as a laboratory for understanding how do these bigger national policies actually impact and matriculate down into our food and agricultural system. Did the Affordable Care Act benefit small family farms? So what's really interesting is that it's a complex landscape, right? And overall, what we found is that there were a lot of actually interesting benefits to farmers. So one thing that folks don't always appreciate is that the Affordable Care Act actually change the eligibility for Medicaid. But before, the eligibility was determined by both your income and assets. And with the ACA, that stipulation was no longer in effect. So what we often talk about is farmers being cash poor and land rich. So your land would count towards your income and often would make farmers ineligible for public health insurance benefits. But with the ACA, it decoupled that. And we found that actually farmers became eligible for health insurance in some cases for the first time in their lives, sometimes in their 50s or 60s, which is huge, right? Because we know that farming is a really dangerous occupation. It's one of the most dangerous occupations in the United States. It's an occupation that's really hard on your body. It's really physical. And farmers also really prioritize health insurance. We found almost three quarters of farmers that we sampled nationally said that health insurance is a really important risk management strategy for their farm. They said, you have to have insurance. We have a risky job, right? And we don't often address that in risk management. We're more focused on crop insurance and not necessarily about the human capital, our human body. And also in answer to your question, we found also, especially for young farmers who were coming off their parents' health insurance, so 26, we, you know, a lot of people talk about that as a cliff, especially if their parents had really good health insurance. They're like, oh my gosh, what am I going to do? And having more options in the marketplace or being eligible for public health insurance options for the farmers, they said, well, you know what, that released them from job lock worries, right? They no longer had to work 40 hours off farm for health insurance. They could work part-time to get some of that capital and needed cash, but they had a lot more options that were much more affordable to them. Yeah. Gosh, this is such a fascinating topic because on the one hand, and you cite these statistics, that today the country has 3.4 million farm operators, roughly 2% of the population, so small in comparison to the rest, and their average age is 58. So we really need to be helping younger farmers get started in any way we can 
You also report that two thirds of farmers have a pre-existing health condition, and one in three farms has a family member whose health problems make farming difficult. So again, this probably is reflecting the age of most farmers today, but in terms of young farmers. Getting on the land and producing food and taking the place of those older and retiring farmers, we have to think about how are we going to take care of the family. So again, we've got health insurance needs, and we've also got childcare. And you also report that every day, thirty-three children are seriously injured in agricultural-related incidents, and every three days, a child dies on the farm. So clearly, we need access to healthcare. And we need safe and reliable childcare. So I'm curious to know about one of the farmers that you mention in your article, Cat Becker. So she feeds hundreds of people in her community with vegetables, the kinds of foods that I recommend that we eat more of. And she's based in Wisconsin. She wants to expand, but she's got a conflict because she's a young farmer. She's got children. She wants to grow her business, but she needs affordable health care or health insurance and childcare. Tell me about Kat Becker. Kat, as you said, is this amazing farmer, and she gave us this really interesting quote where she said, "The stable choice for my farm family is irrational for my farm business." And this is an issue we heard from a lot of farmers, and I think this also goes to one of our really interesting research findings, which was that we found that two out of five. Young farm families were enrolled in the public health insurance program, like Medicaid or CHIP, the Child Health Insurance Program. And in the article, Kat talks about how important their state Medicaid health insurance plan, the Badger Care for Children, was for her family. And what we heard from farmers is there's this really delicate dance that Kat has had to make. If my income goes too high, my children all of a sudden lose access. To health insurance,、mm. right? Because they're no longer eligible for CHIP, and the cost of health insurance is so expensive that she needs to grow her farm significantly more in order to afford health insurance. But if she spends the time and energy to grow her farm where it needs to be to purchase health insurance in the marketplace, well, somebody's got to watch her kids, and then she needs to pay for childcare. And to get really good quality childcare is expensive. And you also have to find the provider that you know and feel is going to do a good job for your children, and not just stick them in front of the TV. Right. So this was really at the crux of where a lot of, especially young farm families, are. And we really want young people on the land. And USDA has invested a lot of money into growing this next generation of farmers. And we want young farmers because they have strong backs and they can do the work, and there's going to be longevity. But These farmers are also in their prime reproductive years, and we really aren't addressing what are the household needs of that family because one of the implications is what we heard from other farmers who we've talked to around the country is that by not addressing these household issues, it's leading to extreme stress, and in cases it's leading to people getting divorced, which actually unfortunately is what happened to Cat's family, and in some cases it's leading to exodus of farmers. Wow. Let me take one break because we're halfway through, and remind our listeners that if you're just joining us, you're tuned into Food Sleuth Radio, where we are speaking with Dr. Shoshana Inwood. She is a rural sociologist and an associate professor 
at the School of Environment and Natural Resources at The Ohio State University. And we are talking about the excellent paper that was recently published in The Conversation titled Family Farms Are Struggling with Two Hidden Challenges, Health Insurance and Child Care. I'd like to also talk a little bit about how farmers perceive social benefits, because I'm thinking about the farmers that I've spoken to and just where I live in the country. I'm based in the Midwest. We have a strong independent attitude, I think, among independent family farmers. I think that's just part of their makeup. But there's this stigma that if there was some sort of social safety net, that they don't want to ask the government for help. How do we help farmers understand that large corporate farms are getting lots of tax dollars, don't they deserve those tax dollars too because they're providing a service in keeping their communities well? That's a really interesting question that we were also really curious about with this research. And first of all, I just want to say that this is an issue that affects all farmers. It doesn't matter what you grow or how you grow it or what size you're at. Every farm has a family, everybody loves their family, and they want their family to be healthy. And that means both physically and emotionally healthy. And so this issue really cuts across all of agriculture. And I do want to say also that this has been the most impactful research I've ever been a part of, where we've had farmers crying and thanking us for doing this work because nobody ever asks them about this. And this is actually one of the most important things to them. And when we did our national survey, I think across the country, one of the things that came back that was actually really surprising was that almost 75%, three-quarters of farmers believe USDA should represent their needs in national health insurance policy discussions. And farmers actually have a, as you mentioned, they can have a distrust of government, but there's a lot of trust of USDA because they feel that they understand their needs. And so I think that there's really a window here to talk about this. And one of the things that we got from farmers in terms of what kind of policy options do you want to see was a whole range of things from more affordable health insurance options in the marketplace, you know, more competition to we need universal health care, right? There, there was a whole range of responses. And I think that there's just a recognition that it's time to talk about the elephant in the room that we haven't been talking about. Well, and I'm sure that this issue crosses over to both your work on the COVID-19 task force, as well as your work with farm families. We need some sort of safety net so that no one goes without health care. Yeah, absolutely. And I think this also ties into larger rural development issues. One of the other things that we saw in our survey that has also aligns well with, with some of the work from USDA ARMS data is that over you know, farmers themselves tend to be really well insured as a whole population because they, they've always prioritized health insurance, but it tends to be through an off-farm job. And when we looked at where farmers are actually working, we saw almost 60% of farms are actually getting their health insurance benefits through the public sector, through public sector employers. So they're working in health, education, and government. And where this really intersects with COVID is because of the budget crisis that COVID brought on for communities, there's been a lot of discussion and debate about cutting county services, cutting back in schools, health care. And we have not really appreciated just how tied in our agricultural economy is 
to those public sector employers, right, and how important they are for providing a stable health insurance safety net for our farm population. So when we cut those jobs and benefits available, we're also affecting our farmers. Right. And we had new terminology around COVID, this idea of who are essential workers. And clearly, we all eat. So those people who are providing us food are indeed essential workers, but they don't have those essential resources to keep them on the farm and keep them healthy. Yes, I actually co-wrote an article with my former PhD student who's now a faculty member at the National Farm Medicine Center, um, Florence Bacow, about farmers who are essential workers who don't have essential benefits. Exactly what you said. And I think this is the moment where we really have to reconcile with what does that mean for our food system, our farmers, and for all Americans, because we're all impacted. People will often ask me, well, well why should we pay attention to farmers? And it's like, well, do you eat? Exactly. You know, in a way, this is a very much a food security issue, right, of how do we keep farmers farming. So it's a food security issue as much as it is a workforce attraction and retention issue. And I would take that one step farther to say it's not only a food security issue, it's a nutritional security issue. And our public health depends on having access to good nourishing food. If given a choice, if you could get broccoli that was harvested yesterday versus that which was harvested several days ago on a farm in California that had to travel thousands of miles to get to the supermarket, which would you choose? I think it's a no-brainer that most people would want the freshest food possible. So then the question becomes, what do we have to do to make sure that everyone has access to that kind of food? Absolutely. And I think, you know, one of the other issues you're hitting on is this issue of, well, can we grow farms, right? Once you have a farm that's established, will it grow or not? And one of the interesting things we heard from farmers was, because farmers really wear two hats, right? They have to make the health insurance decisions for themselves and their families, but also as employers, they have to make health insurance decisions for their employees. Right. And to grow the farm, you really need employees. And that's also another way to create rural economic development through food and agriculture. But we really have to reconcile with what are the quality of those jobs. And one of the things that we heard from farmers was actually their frustration of not being able to offer good benefits to their employees. And they actually said, I'm not going to grow my enterprise because I can't offer good benefits to my employees because the margins are so thin and so variable. Yeah. You know, when we're looking at also value adding types of enterprises, which are also a really important part of, of a robust food system, we found that those farmers are actually the most likely to offer health insurance to their employees because they want to retain skilled workers. But it's still a hard issue to address. And I think this also, again, becomes fundamental, not just to the farm family, but to the whole rural economy and the whole food and agricultural economy around food, right? Because what are the types of jobs? What are the quality of jobs? What do the benefits look like? You use the term value added, and I just want to make sure our listeners understand what you mean by that. Right. That's a great question. So it can mean anything from just slice and dicing and, and those kind of convenience foods, right, that so many of us have come to rely on for, like, making a quick stir-fry to processed jams, jellies, pickles, those types of yogurt, even and any kind of fermented food. So there's some sort of preparation from the food itself to the it, end eater. Exactly. And that's been also something that's been really promoted by USDA as a way for farmers to capture more of the dollar, 
before leaving the farm gate as a way to increase wealth, both within the farm, but also more broadly within rural communities. So again, these are great strategies, but it's also important to look at what are the quality of those jobs being created, whether they're on one farm enterprise or, or even in a food hub, right? And I guess this is the issue that actually goes across the entire supply chain because we know that whether you're in the fields picking or in the processing sector or if you're in retail or grocery stores or in a restaurant worker, these jobs tend to be the least likely to offer benefits most flexible in terms of not having guaranteed hours, yet, as you said earlier, these are essential. These are essential workers that we've really come to rely on, especially in the pandemic. And yet, their access to health insurance and childcare can be especially precarious. Mm. Okay, we just have a few minutes left, and I think that we should devote that time to policy. We are such a divided nation right now, and I think we have to find a way to use language that all parties can come together around. Because we have to think, okay, we know we need health insurance. We know that we need good child care. What are the political roadblocks? Who are the politicians who are voting against our best interests? Because sometimes it seems as though we vote against our best interests. And so I'm trying to bridge this policy gap to help people understand the process better and how can we all become more engaged to get the policies and stated that we need? That's a really great question. I myself am not you know, a health insurance slash childcare policy expert per se, but what I've observed in the, the policy conversations is that there really hasn't been the engagement that needs to be done, especially in rural communities and especially in our farming communities and with our farmers that really, again, goes into these household-level issues to really see how these things are impacting individual families and then also, again, our greater economic structure within the United States and, of course, again, our food security and so as we ratchet up. So I think it's really important to actually bring these bread-and-butter kitchen table issues into the policy discussions to hear from the farmers really how these issues are affecting their lives. And also other investments even within the government. You know, I think that there's a lot of bipartisan agreement that we need farmers and food systems are good. (laughs) And now we need to get to that next level of let's talk about how do we ensure a resilient and strong and prosperous farm sector. Mm. Do you find that farmers typically speak with their legislators about these issues? Some do, right? Like the farm population is very heterogeneous. But I can say that these issues came out when we asked them from farmers in Mississippi, you know, California, Vermont, Oregon, Pennsylvania, Nebraska, places where you think that there might be a lot of really broad differences in political ideology. When we ask folks about the issues, there's actually a lot of convergence around these things. And again, what we started talking about earlier is because these topics aren't really within the paradigm of when we talk about what food and agricultural producers need, that they're often not brought up. Again, the focus is usually on technology and markets and credit and not on these household issues. And I'm hopeful that this research can spark the conversation to say, let's talk about these things. I do too. I think it's a terrific paper. I will provide it to our listeners We'll have it in our show notes. And I want to thank you so much. Our time is up, but I want to thank our listeners for joining us. I want to remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemmelgarn. 
for KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. Most of all, I want to thank my guest, Dr. Shoshana Inwood, rural sociologist and associate professor in the School of Environment and Natural Resources at The Ohio State University. The paper that we have been talking about is titled, Family Farms Are Struggling with Two Hidden Challenges, Health Insurance and Child Care. Thank you so much for your time and this critical research, Dr. Inwood. Thank you for your radio show, Melinda. Melinda.